through the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In other words of our text, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless that word to us. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, some of you may recall, maybe not, but some of you may recall that our congregation became something of um, a Facebook uh, topic of conversation in the midst of COVID uh, when we began worshiping outdoors, when we began worshiping in the parking lot, in the pod pulpit and all of that. You'll remember that the media came and saw what we were doing and reported on it, and that was posted uh, to Facebook. And of course, then Facebook allows people to comment on this thing. And I don't know if you read those comments at all, if you uh, bothered to go through so much of what was said there. But if you did, then you would have been struck by how often uh, people assume that the church, our church in particular, but churches generally, are really uh, just blood-sucking institutions whose purpose is to separate people from their time, to separate people from their money, to uh, keep them under control. There, there's a very dim view of the church, generally speaking, within our world. And, and that dim view is disturbing and, and troublesome in so many ways, understandable, I suppose, in that the enmity that exists between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is, is often disturbing, but also a reminder of how the church has failed in so many ways. Because the church has given off to its communities a sense of privilege, a sense of priority, and a sense of power. The story is told of one who was taken on a tour of the wealth of the Catholic Church, how the, the Pope showed off all that they were given. And then they, he said, no longer can we say with the Apostle Peter, silver and gold have I none. To which the guest replied, but neither can you say anymore, get up and walk. That is, the power of the gospel 
had been lost. The power of love, the power of grace, the power of salvation. We are reminded of that in general in Romans chapter 12 in our study of this applicatory section of Paul's letter which takes the glory of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ and calls us then to live in its light. That's why we read again from Romans 12 to be reminded that this is a passage that calls us in light of God's mercies to present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable for this is our spiritual act of worship. That what Paul in all of these admonitions is telling us to do is to respond to the gospel with open hearts, with grateful lives, with sacrificial service. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian isn't to tick some boxes. It's not to earn any standing. It's not to prove our worth. It is rather to serve. That is the character, or ought to be the character, of the Christian church. A place where service is experienced and rendered. A place where people are blessed by others. That ought to be what people expect and experience when they enter into our midst. They ought to experience a real sense of blessing, of being served by others. And that service has very concrete expressions. Paul has been working through those expressions throughout this chapter, and we have come now to one that is, I think, probably the most challenging for us, at least culturally, because Paul here says to us, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, when Paul says contribute to the needs of the saints, he, he's speaking here of the church in a very specific way. He, He calls the church saints, meaning the holy ones, which is a reference to the body of believers, to the covenant community. Now, Paul doesn't exclusively expect the church to contribute to the needs only of the saints. That is, he's not saying you don't have to bless anyone else. You'll remember that that was the question that the man asked of Jesus when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to be nice to? And who can I not be nice to? Who are the people I never have to be nice to? That's, of course, what lay behind his question. And Paul's not saying that you only have to contribute to the needs of the saints. And indeed, in Galatians 6, verse 10, he reminds us that we ought to also do good to all as we have opportunity. But it's also true that the church ought to learn what it means to contribute, what it means to bless, what it means to support within the context of the covenant community. That this ought to be a community where people receive blessing. That this ought to be a community that is set apart and very distinct from our world because here you get support when you need it. Indeed, the word needs here is a very broad term. It's a word that means those things that are necessary. In Acts 28, verse 10, it describes what is needed for a journey. That is, you are to give what is needed for the journey. And that's a very specific need then. It's, it's clothing or it's food or, or it's, it's, it's lodging along the way. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, what is needed is that which encourages the soul. That's, that's a far more broad example of what's needed. That's a far more pastoral example of what's needed. Which is only to say that the word is is to be understood in the specific context that it's used. You are to contribute to the needs of the saints. Well, which needs 
should I contribute to, you might be tempted to ask. And the answer is, the ones that this saint, this congregation, or this individual needs in their service to Christ. What do they need? Very concretely, what do they need? In order to fulfill their task, maybe they need support. Maybe they need encouragement. Maybe they need a job. Maybe they need someone to come along and show them how to do something. What, what is the need is determined by this unique circumstance of this individual or this community. And what we are to do for this brother or sister in Christ in contributing to their need is to give them all sorts of support, beginning with financial support. You see, the word contribute used by Paul is a rather unusual term in that Paul usually uses another word in this kind of instruction. It's a word that has the sense that you are to give financially to those in need. But it has the added sense that you are to bear up under their sufferings as well. That is, that you are to help them and encourage them in many ways. Now, it's primarily and first of all a call to contribute financially. And that in itself is a challenging word to us as a, as, a, as a congregation. Understand that, again, Paul here is calling us to apply the principle of love to show Jesus Christ's saving work in us, to testify that we've been born again and set apart by Him, that we have been saved. And how can you show that you're saved, asks Paul? Well, you can show it in, among other ways, by contributing to the needs of the saints. Now, that is a challenging word to a Dutch Reformed community. It sounds almost communist, if not socialist, and it unnerves us. Why should I help someone else with my hard-earned money? Why should I contribute to the needs of the saints when they can go and get their own help? That's what I did. Nobody helped me when I was starting out. Nobody gave me a leg up. I had to do it all on my own. That kind of thinking is very prevalent within our community. I can remember years ago suggesting to a group of women that maybe they should provide for a new mother meals. This was many years ago. Now we have the meal train, and that meal train is so wonderfully filled in so many ways and so very quickly. And that's an encouragement. That's a blessing. But those many years ago, the response was, no, I planned all my meals before I had my baby. My fridge was full. My freezer was full. If she hasn't prepared, then that's on her. That mentality is strong within our midst. But it was not strong within the early church. In the early church, we know that they contributed to the needs of the saints in very tangible and very real ways. Think about what we read about in Acts chapter 4, in the verses 20 or 32 and following. You'll remember how the fellowship of believers devoted themselves, and this is in Acts chapter 2, in, in, in the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread. And, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And that's repeated in chapter 4 for emphasis. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And the needs of the saints were very keenly on the heart of the Apostle Paul, even saints that that maybe 
others didn't know about. The Roman church, for example, may not have known much about the Jerusalem church, but Paul plans to visit Jerusalem and he says to the Romans that they ought to contribute. They ought to give to the needs of the saints. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, he says. And, and indeed, Paul had gone around receiving gifts and offerings on behalf of the Jerusalem church. And indeed, it's a repeated refrain in Paul's writing. You can look at 1 Timothy 6, Titus 3, and 2 Thessalonians 3 and discover that Paul very quickly applies the Christian character, applies the call to live out the Christian character in financial terms. He says, if you want to show your faith, give financially to other people. And I think the Apostle Paul says this precisely because he understands how hard it is for us. He reminds us, doesn't he, that God loves a cheerful giver precisely because we so often give uncheerfully. We so often find ourselves unwilling to be separated from our hard-earned money for the benefit of others. Even though to support each other in material and tangible ways, giving in the offering as we've just done, giving meals, giving quiet financial support to those who may be in need, loaning money particularly maybe to somebody that's not doing well at rates below what the banks would provide. All of these tangible expressions of support to the church and the church community expresses not the inherent worth of the other person. That, that is, it doesn't say, hey, you're a good person and you deserve it. Rather, it says to that brother or sister, I belong to you and you belong to me, for we are one in Jesus Christ. And I, I've been given so much, so much from my Savior, and now I give so willingly to you. For Paul, to use the offering as but one example, we can also think of Christian school tuition, we can think of all those drives that come to our door asking for help, or in the many ways that we can provide those services and communities that, that are in need, those, those institutions and activities that are so very good. Providing rent to a newly minted couple at less than market rates, giving new baby showers for ma or baby showers for new moms, etc., etc. We can go on and on to express how tangibly we can provide for those in need. But if we just think for a moment about the offering and the causes that the diaconate placed before us as worthy of our support, what Paul's saying is that when that bag comes in front of you, you now have an, an opportunity to say to God, thank you. And that is a religious moment when that bag passes before you in the worship service. It is purposefully in the worship service because it is a moment of worship. It is a spiritual dynamic, not a material one. We don't take the offering because we need money. We take the offering because we need to thank God for His grace. And we have to do it in concrete, tangible, and sometimes even painful ways. For think of the widow's mite. And think of how Jesus commended her, for she gave out of her one. You see, it's easy for us to take a worldly approach when it comes to our financial circumstances. It is easy for us to think more in the way of the world than in the way of the faith. It's dangerous, isn't it, to come between a Dutchman and his wallet. 
And we don't like being told that we have to give. And we don't think that it's right that I have to be separated from my hard-earned dollars. We can more easily politicize our giving than spiritualize it. And we can point to those better-off members of the congregation and justify our diminished giving because we're needy and they're not. But when the offering bag comes, and not just that, but also that, we have an opportunity to love and to serve, to bless and to praise. We have an opportunity to thank. To thank God for His grace in Jesus Christ. And the amount that you put in there isn't really relevant. It's not a concern whether it's a quarter, a toonie, or some $200. What matters is that you are grateful. Are you giving gratefully to the Lord? Are you cheerfully giving to Christ? Are you contributing meaningfully to the needs of the saints? That's a question we need to all wrestle with. Not only in sun- on Sundays as the offering bag comes by, but also in the day-to-day activities that we engage in. Are we making financial choices and decisions that allow us to serve? Are we setting aside money from our budget in order to be a blessing to others? Indeed, if we're so tight in our budget that there's little to give to those in need, how can we evidence that we love them, that we are loved in Jesus Christ? If we're unable to give to that person, that member who, uh, who suddenly needs some financial help, then how can we show them that we belong to Jesus Christ? We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. But more than that, we are to seek to show hospitality, says Paul. It's a lovely word here that the apostle uses when he says, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is literally the love of the stranger. It's similar to the word Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia is brotherly love. It's a word that Paul has used already in this section of his letter. Here he uses a word that just literally means love of the stranger. And that's what Paul is calling us to seek out. Seek out opportunities to love the stranger. A reminder again that what Paul here is telling us is that we are to work out the love of Christ in our day-to-day activity. That is, that what Paul is going to call us here in the call to be hospitable is, again, not to make ourselves seem good, not to pat ourselves on the back, not to elevate our standing within the community, but rather to show that we love because we've been loved, to show that we give because we've been given so much in Jesus Christ. Indeed, to be hospitable, to love the stranger, is not first of all about who they are, but about who we've become in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who loved the stranger. We are that stranger. Jesus Christ who pursued us and loved us so perfectly, welcoming us into the fellowship of His Father. We who were His enemies. We who were at war with Him, yet worked His grace that we might now be in His house and be welcomed by Him as brothers and sisters in His name. That Jesus who is the most hospitable of saviors calls us now to be hospitable Christians. And he says you are to seek, the, seek to be hospitable. Seek to love 
the stranger. Now the word seek here is actually a rather tame translation of a very difficult word. Because the word really means to pursue or chase down or grab hold of. So that Paul is saying you have to be aggressive in your hospitality. Now, to say someone should be aggressive in their hospitality sounds a bit strange. It doesn't sound particularly nice. Imagine grabbing hold of some stranger and saying, you have to come to my house to eat a meal with me. That's not what Paul's suggesting, obviously. He doesn't want us to grab every guest that comes within our fellowship, within our worship service, within our day-to-day living, and drag them home in order to satisfy this command. Yet at the same time, Paul is encouraging us to be more than just passive in our pursuit of kindness. He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He doesn't want us to be lackluster. He wants us to be eager and active. And he wants us to pursue the showing of love. Now this kind of love has a great history in the church of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with calls to gracious home openings. There are calls to love for the sojourner. Think about what we read also in the law in Exodus 22, verse 21, and again in verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 9. Uh, there are these calls to love the sojourner, love the alien within your midst. And those calls are often rooted in the grace that we've received. Think of that in the context of Deuteronomy 5. Why are we to give the alien, the sojourner, a day off on Sundays? Because we've been given life in Jesus Christ. We've been delivered. Let them experience the joy of deliverance as well. Having been strangers in Egypt, we were to treat the stranger as, they, as we would want to have been treated. But more fundamentally, this call to loving the stranger reflects the God who has loved us. For God loves the sojourner. God loves the stranger. This was an important ministry in Jesus Christ. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. This is what lies certainly at the heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan sees a man that is to him a stranger, and could legitimately, with social uh, approval, pass by him and not do a thing. But Jesus says to love is to love the stranger. It's to love the one in need. It's to love the one who crosses your path. And this became a very vital aspect of the early church's ministry, particularly under the oppressive uh, persecution that the church experienced then having a brother or sister in a, uh, another town, in another city as you traveled, was to find some sort of respite, some, some protection, some help. Hotels were not so available. Traveling was not always so easy. But hospitality meant that a Christian forever had a home to attend to. We experienced a bit of this as a family when we were in Scotland. They country, a community, certainly the church community, that is profoundly hospitable. You don't need to worry about renting a hotel ever when you're there. They will let you and welcome you into their homes if they have never met you before, don't know who you are. We had opportunity to stay with people. Our kids had opportunity to stay with people simply because that is their culture, their approach to life. We need to develop that culture as well. 
We need to develop it despite all of our worries and concerns. So often we worry about the quality of our home, the state of its cleanliness, what others will think. We too often get caught up in ourselves and our stuff and so don't want that stranger to pass by the door of our home and learn about us something that might be a little bit disturbing and dark. We are willing to be nice to them outside, but not inside. But we are called to show love to the stranger, to give of ourselves to them, to give that they might be blessed. And the stranger is not always the one who comes from a distance. It can be a neighbor who's struggling with loneliness or any manner of illness. It can be someone who is facing challenges in their life and needs to be encouraged and lifted up. The stranger ultimately is the one who is brought across our path in God's providence and who is in need. And here's a real opportunity, it seems to me, for churches to stand out increasingly in our divided and fractured world. Because our world is falling apart. Our world is breaking into pieces. We are now being identified in all manner of different ways in terms of our sexuality, in terms of our economic class, in terms of our race. Our world is being divided up into smaller and smaller pieces and you belong to this one and you belong to that one. And and there is no longer the unity and the openness that ought to mark communities and certainly ought to mark the church community. We have a real opportunity to be a light and salt into our world just by being nice to those who come into our fellowship and cross our paths. To be open, to be willing to bring into our homes those in need is a powerful witness in a fallen world of the saving grace of God. That's why Rosaria Butterfield has written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And indeed, if you read that book and see what she does in bearing out this principle of seeking hospitality, you'll find yourself greatly challenged, if not a little bit embarrassed. Because literally, her house is an open door. People can come in and eat anytime and every time. And that's the way we ought to live. We ought to live in such a way that those who are in need will find in us support and encouragement, who will find in us love. And that we'll show that love in very tangible, very concrete ways. That we'll open our wallets to those that are in need, but we'll also open our homes. And that we will embrace them and provide for them what they stand in need of so that they may experience what we've experienced, which is blessing beyond compare. For we have been brought into the family of faith. We have been given far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And now are we taking those gifts? Are we taking the gift of the Lord's Supper? Are we taking this grace? And and hoarding it for ourselves, locking our doors so that nobody can see, not letting anyone in? Or are we saying, as I've been given, let me give to you. As I've been blessed, let me bless you. You see, that's the problem with stinginess. That's the problem with being isolated, unwilling to, to welcome others, to bless others. Is it suggests that we have not been blessed. It suggests that we do not know grace. And we as God's people, as Dutch Reformed folk, ought to be the ones who know the grace more than anyone else. We know what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We know what He has accomplished for us in His Son. We have it before us on the table now. Let us receive this grace in order to give it. Let us 
embrace this food, that it may strengthen us to bless others. And let's make it a priority in our lives to bless others by opening our wallets and by opening our homes. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you challenged by your word because, Lord, it is true. We are a people that like our money. And we are uncomfortable at times letting people into our home. But now we pray that you would help us to celebrate your grace and goodness by seeing how opportunities to show that love are opportunities to show our gratitude to you. If, Lord, we need to challenge ourselves in our giving, help us to answer that call in this day and in this coming week. If we need to challenge ourselves in hospitality, help us to answer that call today and in this coming week. And bless us, Heavenly God and Father, to this end, that your name may be glorified and that the church may be a light to the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.